Folks, one of the heroes of the faith is the man's going to speak next. He is a pastor of a great church in Houston. And quite frankly, most of the large churches have gone into the church business. And we're not going to say anything that could be controversial because we're worried about our attendance and our offerings. Not this man. He is a bold warrior for the Lord. As a matter of fact, you have likely heard his sermon, 107 Days, which we had sent out earlier in preparation for this event. And if you listened to it and responded to those questions that Dr. Scarborough had put together, then we would have refunded you $100. By the way, if you haven't listened to it yet, too late, forget it, bank's closed. But this man is a real treasure, and we are proud and honored to have him as a friend. Please welcome Pastor Steve Riggle. Well, I'm happy to be here with you today. I uh, figured out that I have the distinct notoriety of being the only person I've ever heard of that uh, people were actually paid to listen to him preach. And uh, you notice I don't have a, a product table back there. That's because Rick and Paul ran out of money. If I'd have brought product and they'd have had to pay all of you to read and listen to that product, why, they didn't have that much money. So anyway, um, I, want to, uh, I want to talk to you today out of the book of Joel. Actually, I got up here and... Uh, I was, uh, in Paul's email to me, he had uh, asked me to bring that message, and then a number of you came up to me, and I realized that you'd already heard that sermon, so I figured my choice was either to go ditto or to do something else. So I have something else. I'm not sure it's well put together, but uh, that's really not the point today. The point is why we are here. So I want you to uh, think with me about the setting of the book of Joel, three short chapters, that in this particular book of the Bible, it covers a tremendous span of time, both in the, in the contemporary setting in which it was delivered, and then looking forward prophetically to the very end of the age, the end of time. So you, Joel begins, of course, with the judgment of God in this tremendous army that the, that the Scripture says came in. But the, but the army is not a human army. It is an army of locusts, unlike you've never seen before. Uh, follow, following that is, uh, is God's promise to say, I will restore, I will redeem. And so God comes, and there is not only that in the contemporary day for those who come to respond to the trumpets that sound. But, uh, but in the middle of that, there is also the promise for another day, for, for the age in which we live. In the last day, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So you see that promise. And then the book ends with the, a view into the final days in which this plague of locusts, what happened on the earth then, looks mild compared to what is poured out upon the earth in result, as a result of the evil deeds of, of man. The 13th verse of chapter 3 says, The winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great, 
And in that context, the Bible says, the Lord will roar from Zion. And then, so we see in these short chapters, um, a whole overview of what will take place from this day until the time that Jesus comes and, the, and this earth is no more. So I want to I read today a, a fair number of scriptures out of chapter 1 and 2. If you have your device there, you can follow with me. And then let me make some comments uh, in, in regard to this. Uh, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children let, and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin, gird, girded with sackcloth, for the husband of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord, the priests mourn, who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the Lord has perished. The vine has dried up and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run with a noise like chariots, over mountain tops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the, st the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain, all faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, though they lunge between the weapons. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. And remember, this is all talking about bugs. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, verse 12, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. 
Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who ministered to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say, notice this phrase. In this, uh, in this, the last uh, of this seventeenth uh, verse, why should they say among the peoples, "Where is your God?" Those words are as contemporary in this day as they were in this day of the nation of Israel. I want you, I want you to catch this picture. Because it's, it's really important. I want you to see the setting of what Joel is all about. In just a few hours, what had once been a beautiful, lush land was now a place of desolation and destruction. Just a few hours, the landscape had totally changed. This plague of locusts, were greater than anyone had ever seen before. Crops were lost. The seed crops for the next planting, that was lost. A famine and drought had come across the land. People and animals were dying. It was so profound and so disastrous that Joel saw only one explanation for what had happened, that it was the judgment of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you recall, when Moses gave his sermon to Israel, here's, here's what he said. He warned that if the nation was disobedient, locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. And now the prophet Joel, he's, he looks around at what's happening in the land and he says, this is what has happened. So, he, uh, he graphically gives us the picture. And the reason I read these words, they seem almost redundant in terms of their description. But instead of just skipping over them, when you read the book of Joel, to try to get to chapter 2, verse 28, and get to this idea that God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh, it might be good. To stop for a moment and recognize the setting into which that prophecy comes. Why is it that uh, the Holy Spirit through the prophet would take so much time, so many words to describe? Why didn't he just say, look, a whole bunch of locusts came. They ate everything in sight. Let's just move on and let's just get to the point here. But you read in great detail about these locusts, about the four swarms. The first one comes, they eat everything in sight. The second one comes, they, they eat anything that was left. The third one comes, and if there's anything left at all, they eat that. And then a fourth swarm comes. And by, time, by the time the fourth swarm is through, uh, they have eaten everything. There's nothing, just imagine 
going outside and there's nothing green at all left. Every tree is totally denuded. The landscape looks like some movie, some science, sci-fi movie that's been made. And it happens in just a matter of hours. The world that you knew three hours ago is totally different than the world that you know now. Now, now put up that first picture. I mean, how would you like to live in the middle of something like that taking place? Right there. And that's what the prophet describes as he, as he gives the setting for this book of Joel. Uh, um, you know, we live in Houston and we have roaches. You have roaches, we have roaches, everybody has roaches in Houston. So we have, uh, we have sprayers that come to try to control the roaches. And when one or two or three or four roaches come out, I mean, you got to call the sprayer. Can Imagine this, living in the middle of that, because that's the setting. As you open up the book of Joel, I want to I ask you today, as you think about that, to think about our own land. Joel, the setting of Joel, is in the midst of calamity. In the middle of that calamity, the Bible says there is the sounding of a trumpet. It is the sounding of an alarm. It is the first trumpet. Now here's the thing. You, you actually didn't need the trumpet sound to know that things were bad. I mean, if you're living in the middle of that, I mean, surely you don't need a trumpet to sound. When you see that, you see them eating everything in sight. You can hear, uh, the Bible commentators will talk about that when the locusts came through, you could hear them eating. There was a sound to the locusts eating everything in sight. You, uh, you actually would know what the locusts were doing. It was all around you. But you don't get the point in the middle of, of great devastation, in the middle of calamity, they never stop to ask why. Why is this happening? I wonder how many people in the middle of, of, of our calamity right now, I wonder how many preachers have stopped to ask why. Is there a reason beyond the fact that a virus just got out of China and visited us? Is there a reason why the, the world is reeling? Is, is there a reason why all of the economic devastation that's happened? Is there a reason why even churches look like the walking of the zombie dead? They never stop to ask why. You know, it is amazing how we can get used to living. You can, 
You can get used to devastation and destruction and constriction and loss. And if it just happens long enough, you just kind of, you know, the frog being boiled in the teapot, just a little at a time, pretty soon you call it normal. The sounding of the alarm was to get the people to wake up. Because the prophet is saying that God has allowed everything of, of what was to be eaten away, eroded, consumed, gone, and what is left is barrenness. Everything they knew is gone. And now there is this denuded landscape around them. I want you today to look beyond the physical reality. Because the locusts are not the beginning. The beginning of this condition is an insidious, invisible force. It is a spirit that came to destroy the foundation of the nation. Remember, this is all about, these are the people of God. They were to be trusting in God. They were to be walking the way of the Lord. They were to be serving God. And now they find themselves in a place where anything that is life-begetting is gone. And they're left with barrenness because they have departed from the way of the Lord. What has been eaten away in the unseen is really important. Their fidelity to God becomes manifested in the scene. The locusts eat everything in sight. See, we, um, in, with our contemporary theology, it's very common for us to think that we can just tweak God a little. You know, we don't even think a thing about it when we say or somebody says, if I were God, Pretty soon you talk like that long enough, you just sort of make what you think about God, God. Let me just ask you a question. Don't, don't answer it, just think about it for a minute. What is there of the word that you don't feel like you have to obey because you've decided for whatever reason it's not all that important? Let me say it again. What has been eaten away in the unseen our fidelity to God becomes manifested in the scene. The locusts are eating everything in sight. So God becomes the God of our making rather than the God revealing and defining himself by his word. The manifestation of the problem here that exists is sociological. It is human behavior. The calamity that is the result of the problem is physical. The locusts are eating everything. But the root problem, the root cause of the problem is spiritual. It has to do with the human heart. In fact, show that second picture, would you? I saw this picture on the internet, this clogged filter, and the wording that was with it was something like this. Many Christians are running around wearing masks when their heart looks like this. Remember Joel 2.13. The response that God called for wasn't to clean up the bugs. 
It was to clean up their hearts. Rend your heart and not your garment. Rend your heart. See, we, the truth is, in this day, we don't want to be confronted at all, but, but if we happen to be, it's way easier for us to just amend our behavior. Oh, sorry, Lord. Uh, oh, well, and just keep doing whatever we want. Sorry, Lord. Maybe I'll just adjust a bit. That is a sociological response. But what God wants is a heart change that will produce a behavior change. It begins with the heart. And out of the heart, then man responds to what is happening in his heart. And so inwardly, he lives for God. And outwardly, he lives for God. The first trumpet is a response to, the, to what is the condition of the day. It follows the behavior of the people. Sound the alarm and see if the people will wake up and realize how dire their condition is. Now here's the thing. There is another trumpet. Each of them are different sounds. There were a number of sounds that the people of that day would have recognized when the trumpet sounded. One was of warning that we just heard. The other one, there, there was another sound, of. there were more than two, but one of the other sounds of the trumpet was when the people were called together. The second, my, my point here is that if you don't hear the sound of the first trumpet, if you don't know there's a problem, you'll never hear the sound of the second trumpet, which is a call to action. Come together and let's deal with the root of this problem. Let's deal with what has caused what's taking place all around us. So, with that setting, I want to ask you to look at the condition of our day. I'm not up here today to make some big prophetic statement. I, I, just, I just want to poke you a little. And cause you to think about things. To wonder a little. Look at the condition of this day. We are surrounded by crisis that has produced fear. Not just in the people of the day. But in the people of God. Not just in the people of God. But in the preachers who represent God. The greatest economy in the greatest nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth taken down by a virus in a matter of weeks. So we have a virus. Out of that virus we have a pandemic. We have an economic crisis. In the middle of that, then we have now violence and chaos and riots on a nightly basis. Thugs and anarchists with Marxist and socialist agendas who are now engaged in a revolution. That's what they think. They're engaged in a revolution to dismantle our country. They have stated it publicly. Then we have governors and mayors who are issuing decrees that are destroying the economic engine of the nation. Orders to quarantine, restrict our basic freedom of movement, make everyone mask up. Never mind that the goalposts keep moving. 
And might be might be good idea to ask yourself, uh, you know, if they move the goalpost once, okay, well, you know, I mean, so not everybody gets it right the first time. But when the goalposts have moved 10, 15, 20 times, they just keep moving all the time. You wake up in the morning, you can't figure out where the goalposts are for that day. At some point, you ought to begin to ask yourself, if these people are really the experts, I mean, in, in any other field. You know, I pastored for more than 30 years in the NASA community. I buried two astronauts in our church when the shuttle Columbia blew up. NASA had to be precise. You couldn't afford every day to change your mind or, oh, whoops, because you couldn't, you couldn't afford the oopses. What's happening around us in the name of science today? These rulers have targeted the church. They've had the audacity to say the church cannot worship in their buildings, can't gather, can't sing, and chant their liturgy. They've taken away your biblical mandate together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. You do know, you do know that the foundational word of the New Testament church in which everything spiritual happened was not a Zoom call. It was fellowship. It was in the fellowship they found their strength. It was in the gathering that the power of the Spirit came down and shook the place where they were gathered because they called on the name of the Lord. They have made the church of Jesus subject to them taken away your inalienable rights, taken away your constitutionally recognized and protected rights in this nation. Fifth crisis we have is a crisis of confidence. Who do we believe? Do we believe God? Who do we believe in all of the people who are telling us all of these things that are around us and what about we who are the people of God? Do we believe God? There is a crisis there. We are surrounded today by a lot of shouting. It is like the sound of swarming locusts. Those, those sounds are actually mentioned here in the text. What they sounded like. The prophet goes into detail to not only describe what the situation looked like, but even what the, it sound, the locusts sounded like when they were destroying everything in sight. We have, may, may not sound like locusts, but we have a lot of sound today, intimidating, producing fear. If you don't go along with the narrative, you're shamed. Pastors, so afraid that someone in the church might get COVID, that they make the gathering of the house of God the people of the Lord. 
uh, worship in a way that's not worship at all. Let me deliver you from that fear right now. If the question is, is someone in your church going to get COVID? The answer is yes. Okay, now you don't need to be afraid of it anymore. Just like someone who's in the grocery store might get COVID. Somebody who's at your work might get COVID. Your neighbor might get COVID. You might get COVID. People are going to get COVID. Should the church be shut down because someone breaks their arm or gets the flu or something else that happens? We, uh, Dave Welch, who is the head of the Houston Area Pastors Council, uh, Dave put on um, a number of calls when all of this stuff was happening with uh, our lieutenant governor, a couple calls with Dan, uh, some calls with Ken Paxton, who is our attorney general, and all of the guidance, guidelines, all the executive orders from the governor and all that obviously goes through the attorney general's office. So we had one call, one call, uh, Zoom call, and you know these numbers are accurate because the company, phone company's tracking. You don't have some preacher tracking this. And uh, we had between twelve and 1,300 pastors on this one call with the Attorney General. He had, he had issued guidance for churches in Texas. Guidance. The guidance was actually written by pastors. I was one of them. Dave sent out a deal. We all put our input, sent it to the Attorney General. He sent it out to the pastors. Guidance, not guidelines, not mandates, guidance. So we're all on the call. He, the, the Attorney General, he does his gives his speech, and um, when he finished, Dave opened it up for questions, and guys started asking questions. Well, uh, the, 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 the 25% capacity in my church, and how should I set the chairs apart, and, um, and you know, this, and, and all these kind of questions, and so he would patiently answer, and finally, about after the fourth or fifth person, he said, look, guys, there are no requirements for the church in Texas. These are, this is guidance. You can do whatever you want. We're not going to dictate to the church in Texas how they should meet or worship God. I'm glad you're clapping, but I got a little follow-up with that. Why then are there still churches in Texas not open to worship God? I mean, I don't have to be liked here. You know, I'm going to leave when I'm done and... I'm not looking for anywhere else to preach, so. How come it took some of you so long to open up the house of the Lord? This is the house of the Lord. You are the gatekeeper. Listen, if this is all it takes to take you out of the fight, and put you on the bench, a virus, you, you ought to quit right now because when the day comes and it's mandated that you hire homosexuals in your church to do the work of the ministry, or, or you're told that you can't preach against certain things or you can only preach on certain things and all of that, you'll never, you'll never stand in that day. 
I, I believe this is a defining moment for the church and for pastors in this nation. I, I pray we pass the test. We need some pastors who are like the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, knew what Israel ought to do. Blow the trumpet! Here's the question. In the middle of the desperate time, in the United States of America, will there be a prophetic voice that discerns the time and courageously trumpets a warning to the people? That's the question. Remember, we're not talking sociologically. We're not talking about the the physical manifestation. We are talking about the spiritual condition of a nation that has turned its back on God. Who's killed 60 million of its babies. Actually, that question, I'm talking about you. And your voice. Let me phrase it another way. In this desperate hour, will your voice be a prophetic trumpet to the church and to the people of the day? Your voice. Remember Isaiah 58, verse 1? Shout loudly. Don't be quiet. Yell as loud as a trumpet. Confront my people with their rebellious deeds. Oh, that sounds like your best life now, doesn't it? You know, you know, you know what's the easiest thing is? Is to let other people shout for you. I've had other pastors tell me that. Well, you know, Steve, that's, it's, it's just your calling to speak up. Are you kidding me? I can't tell you how many church members in Houston, Texas have said to me at various events, our pastor won't speak up at all. I was speaking at the River Oaks Country Club. That's the place in Houston. And um, so uh, I was speaking there with one of our congressmen. And so they had... uh, they had him sit at a table with some business, all business guys, pretty, pretty big business guys. Had me sit at another table. And uh, so, um, you know, we started off just the conversation. Then the guys found out who I was and that I was going to be speaking. And so then the conversation turned. And they're all grousing. Well, you know, our church, our pastor, he won't speak up. Our church, our... So I sat there and listened to it for a while. And finally, I thought, I don't have anything to lose. None of these guys are going to come to our church. So I'm just going to say what I think. So I said, you want to know why your pastor won't speak up? They said, yeah. I said, because every Sunday you keep paying your tithe. And he knows that he doesn't have to speak up because you're going to give your tithe no matter what. See, you guys right here, you won't come to my church. But you'll give your money and you'll support a church where there's a leader who won't speak up at all. And I said, until you're willing to vote with your feet, pastors aren't going to feel the heat. 
and they won't be speaking up. You know why? We all want somebody else to shout for us. Just easier. Oh, you know, I'm busy. I have this high and holy calling. Oh, I got that. Oh, Steve, you know, it's really not my thing. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a shouter. People, people might not like me if I do. They won't. I, I can tell you right now, they, they won't like you if you do. People might say things about me. They will. You know, one translations of Romans, or a translation of Romans 12 says, don't be squeezed into the world's mold, shaped by the world's way of thinking. There's a lot of pastors in that spot today. Shaped by the world's way of thinking. So interested in reaching the lost, they forgot that the cross is an offense. It is the power of God to salvation. It is the preaching of the cross. That all leads to appeasement. But it never works. Appeasement is when the mayor or the governor says, um, you know, we can't do all this. You, You just try, oh, well, you know, we just go along. Listen, listen, and um, you should know as spiritual leaders that whenever a demonic power, a spirit, asks something of you and you give a little just so you don't have to enter the fray, the conflict, it's never enough. Because behind the outward action of every attempt to silence the voice of the church, to close the church, all of that is a, it is rooted in a demonic spirit. That spirit is always after subjugation and domination and then destruction. First a robber steals everything, then a destroyer, then a killer. The ultimate goal is to eliminate you and to eliminate the church of Jesus. So it seems to me you're going to live one of four ways. You'll either feel threatened and intimidated by what's happening today, and by that you'll be silenced. You're shamed by the narrative of the day. And so you may say, well, I really believe right, but you won't stand up and you won't speak out for fear of what might happen. Or secondly, you'll just buy into the narrative of the day. Lots of churches are doing that pressed into the world's mold, all the new buzzwords that are there today, and you buy into all of that. Third, you'll be oblivious to what's happening because you have all your programs, your protocol, everything is there. You have all your mechanics of ministry and all of that, and and here you are right in the middle of our nation falling apart, going to hell in a handbasket, and you're still up there preaching the same old formulas Or fourth, you'll live with a convictional, Christocentric, biblically shaped worldview that refuses to bow to gods of supposed equality and conformity. You will reject the new qualifiers, the terms. You'll defy those who want to destroy the fabric of our society. 
You won't deny societal ills, but neither will you tear the society apart, but you'll work to reshape and correct it for the good of all. You'll lead by getting everyone in your circle of influence to vote, and you'll help elect people at all levels of government who have godly moral values, and you'll stand firm in this evil day. See, uh, it seems to me that in this hour, pastors must lead in two fundamental ways. They must lead first in crying out, that is intercession, and secondly in speaking out, that is standing, and they are each different. To... We've had a lot of conversation here in terms of speaking out. I'm not going to talk about that much uh, 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 at all today. It seems that uh, the church has lost its voice and its power in prayer. Let me ask you a question. Do you lead a corporate prayer meeting that is the most important gathering of the week in your church? And if you don't, why not? Since Jesus himself said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Oh, oh, Steve, it's too hard. People won't come. I understand all that. I still lead the corporate prayer meeting in our church. I tell the people at least several times a month, this is the most important gathering of the week. We haven't come to navel gaze here. We have come to cry out. Why? Well, because we understand something. From the great intercessor of Genesis 18. When God came by with the angelic messengers and stopped by Abram on his way to Sodom. Remember the Bible says the cry of Sodom had reached the heavens. And heaven said we're going to go down and see if what we've heard is altogether true. Remember that? They stopped by Abram to say hey the deal's still on. The promise that I've made to you I'm still going to do. And the two angelic messengers walk on towards Sodom. And the Bible says, Abram still stands before the Lord. Theophany. And the Lord says, here's here's what's going to happen to Sodom. And Abram begins to go, well, Lord, what about 50? If there's 50 righteous, remember, this is the clearest picture of intercession in all the Bible. The picture of intercession. What about, if there's 45, Lord... Intercession, the, the, the one who goes before, the one who stands on behalf of. What if there's 40, 30, 20? What if there's 10, Lord? And Abram stops asking before God stops conceding. God didn't say, don't ask again. The cry of wickedness reached the heavens. The Bible talks about the prayers of the saints. The cry of ten righteous would have been louder. Sodom was not destroyed, though they deserved it. Because of the gross sin of the nation, Sodom was destroyed because ten righteous could not be found. The cry of ten would have been louder in the heavens than their sin. What about the cry over your city? What about your cry over this nation? What about you? I mean, let's just start with all of us who are the preachers. I mean, do you delegate the prayer to, you know, somebody else, some volunteer, and they have six people over in the corner? Or do you lead it?
If you don't get anything out of this today, remember Sodom. I would hate for all of us to stand before the Lord on the day in which we give an account for how we've handled us and our stewardship in this life and him say, you know, I told you about the source of power. I told you my house was to be a house of prayer. You made it everything else. You spent, you spent all your time talking about programs and activities. You, you, you really didn't go after all the people. You didn't teach them how to cry out. The nation could have been saved because the cry of righteousness would have been louder than the cry of its sin, but there wasn't very many people crying. Let me just wrap this up real quick. I'm not going to get through the rest of this, but let me just wrap it up. Remember Goliath? 1 Samuel 17, he challenged the people of God. He said, am I not a Philistine and are not you not the servants of Saul? You know, we just read through that and move on, but it's really important. They weren't the servants of Saul. They were the servants of the Most High God. I wonder if we actually get that. I mean, in all of our teaching and preaching and our study and all, I wonder if... We are really the servants of God. I wonder if our view of what God has actually called us to do is way less than his plan and purpose for us. If we fail to see ourselves in light of this high and holy calling, it's not about whether other people, other men, it's, it's not about whether your name is ever in, in ministry magazine or in any of those kinds of things. It's not about any of that stuff. See, see, God might use you to shape and change the world. doesn't matter what anyone else has ever heard of you. So let me finish with this. I have a word for you today. Jehovah God is still all-powerful. My prayer, my prayer is that the cry over this nation by all the secular people who are mocking and everything that's going on today will not be where is their God. Jesus is still Lord. And he's still the head of his church. Even though King Newsom in California and other governors give their orders as to when, where, and how we might worship. I have news for King Newsom of California and the other governors. We have only one king. His name is Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus the head of his church, but he is also the mighty warrior. And because he is the mighty warrior, he enables you to stand in the evil day. He enables you to obey God rather than man. He enables you to boldly speak for what is right and righteous. He enables you to tear down every stronghold. He intercedes through you in the power of his spirit. That is how you fight this battle of this hour. It may look like we are surrounded, but we are surrounded by the Lord God himself in the middle of this day.